But the interesting thing about that, that was kind of like on one of the back pages. But on the very front page, there was a sign, there was pictures of a signing ceremony of a new treaty that had just been negotiated in Washington, D.C. And that treaty was the PAC Cooperation Treaty. How was I to know that some 20 years after that, myself and that treaty were going to come together? That's my guest on today's show, Gary Smith. He's an international patent consultant with over 50 years experience with a career that started in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office in the 1970s. Gary joins me to discuss his long and distinguished career, including rising to the ranks of PCT International Division, director of the PCT at WIPO in Geneva, and starting his own company, the PCT Learning Center. I'm your host, Justin Simpson. I'm an Australian patent attorney and founder of Bill Trader. Welcome to the next episode of Talking IP, a podcast for IP professionals featuring conversations that take you inside the professional lives and careers of global IP leaders and entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy the show. Gary, good to see you. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's good to see you, Justin. Uh, you've had such a long and distinguished career. I'm, I'm not sure we're going to cover everything you've achieved in your uh, lifetime, but if you don't mind, we're going to go back to the beginning uh, when you started your career as a patent examiner at the US Patent Office. Uh, I like to ask people, how do you even know about patents? How do you know about a patent examiner? Uh, and how did you get that first job? Well, I was about, I was in my senior year. I'm a mechanical engineer by training and I was at Purdue University in Indiana, the state of Indiana. And there was a whole number of my friends that were going to go to Washington, D.C. And about half of them wanted to work at the patent office. So I had never heard of the patent office before (laughs) then. So I said, okay, you know, why don't we go there? Why don't we try? You know, we'll have a group of friends and nobody is in the Washington, D.C. area now. They've all gone to far-flung areas. Yeah, nobody. They're all scattered. Yeah. I might have been the longest to stay there. And of course, I've been out of there for a number of years now. So so it was peer pressure from uh, university mates. So uh, were there any other peer pressure things you did you regret as a youth? <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about those. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> Let's give some time context to this. I know you were at the USPDO for about 25 years. Uh, so as a mechanical engineer, what, what sort of things were you examining back then? What were the in- inventions of that time? Okay, let me just step back one bit. Okay, so when I first came to the patent office, they were hiring people in groups of like 10 or 20. And I think the whole number that was hired the year that I came there was about 70. And the total number of patent examiners around six or 700. Now they hire by the hundreds and there's almost (laughs) 9,000 U.S. patent examiners. At that time, it was not called the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. It was just called the Patent Office. So when I got to the patent office, there was a newsletter and they took a picture of everybody that was in the patent examiner initial training. And of course, my group was there. I'd show you the picture, but not even my wife can pick me out of the group. (laughs) You didn't have long shoulder length hair, did you? Yeah. And and, uh, John Lennon glasses and all that. (laughs) I was a different person. But the interesting thing about that, that was kind of like on one of the back pages. But on the very front page, there was a sign, there was pictures of a signing ceremony of a new treaty that had just been negotiated in Washington, D.C. And that treaty was the PAC Cooperation Treaty. How was I to know that some 20 years after that, myself and that treaty were going to come together? Your career and uh, treaty itself were born in the same place. Pretty much. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> How is it that you managed to uh, float your way, I'll call it, to the top? 
top. Obviously, you weren't head of the USPDO itself, but you became head of the, the PCT division. How did you get there? Was it an interest? Did you elbow everyone else out of the way? How did you get to that level? Well, before I got to that, I had a, a pretty long career at the patent office. So I started as an assistant patent examiner that everyone starts at, and I became what they call a primary patent examiner. A primary patent examiner can actually issue patents at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO. And after that, I became a supervisory patent examiner. The, the world opened up. So I was able to do a lot of really interesting things like work on the automation of the patent office. If you can imagine back in the early days, everything that happened in the office happened on paper. They had these little cards, these orange cards and these blue cards, and they wrote everything <laughs> down. So, you know, it, it's just something that was not sustainable. So I was able to work on that. And that was very, very interesting. And then I was able to morph into, I was honored to become a U.S. Commerce Science and Technology Fellow. And that allowed me to work for a year at what they call the Office of Science and Technology Policy. It's more commonly known as the White House Science Office. So I was able to work for the President's Science Advisor on aspects of international competitiveness in the IP field. So I did that for a year. At the end of that period, I got a visit from a colleague who said, we need somebody to take over the PCT's portion of the USPTO. And he asked me if I would take that over. And my wife immediately said, hmm, this could be a segue to something interesting. <laughs> Let's give it a go. So it was interesting, but it was very, very challenging. You know, I'm glad that I did it. But at the same time, I learned a lot about dealing with very difficult situations and all that. You're actually working in the White House advising uh, the president or the president's ad advisors as part of this, uh, this job? Yep, I was doing that on television, you know, like Jack Ryan advising the president on, on something? Yeah, something like that. But if you ever saw the U.S. show West Wing? Yes. Nothing like that. <laughs> Nothing like that? There's a building right next to the White House. At that time, it was called the old executive office building. Now it's called the Eisenhower executive office building. And that's where a lot of the offices were, including this OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. So I could just walk down the back steps of the building and walk right into the West Wing and right up to the Oval Office. And there were some big guys there that had this little bulge that reminded me that that's as far as I could go. <laughs> it wouldn't work out well. So if you're advising uh, the, the US government, the president on competitiveness and, and patents, and obviously when I was deeply in the profession, the US was number one in patents in the world. Where were they at that time? Probably number one, but still quite a lot smaller in terms of uh, annual PCTs. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They were by far the, the biggest filer of PCTs in the world, but they were getting about 10,000 in their receiving office a year. Now they're getting around 50 to 60,000 applications filed a year. So it's grown enormously. And happily, there's been a lot of automation to allow this to happen. If they had the old processes that were in place when I got there, there's no way they could have handled this unless they had enormous staffs. I'm interested in that automation. I, I try and uh, build computers rather than uh, people whenever I can in in, uh, in my, my businesses. So uh... 
uh, when you've made those changes, what sort of automation was it? Have you got, what, what did you bring into play? Okay, no, they didn't have anything quite that sophisticated. When I was at the USPTO, there was very little we could do as far as automating the PCT because at WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, they were controlling the electronic environment. So it wasn't until I was able to get to WIPO that I was able to do things that then could benefit the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, PCT operation, and that helped it enormously. I know amongst patent attorneys, I always find that patent attorneys themselves are very conservative people. When I'm trying to introduce new technologies, they take a long time, even though the day job is examining the latest uh, invention. So I'm, I'm pleased that the USPTO actually took on some of your advice on the automation side. Well, that's one of the reasons it took so long for the PCT uptake in at the USPTO is because of the conservative nature of the patent profession. You know, the, the PCT, even though it was negotiated in 1970, it wasn't until 1978 that it actually came into effect because that's how long it took. The, the, there were certain number of countries and, and certain countries that had to be part of the PCT system. And it took them eight years in order for them to get their laws enacted, procedures in place. So eight years later, and just about the time that the EPO was getting going, the, the PCT was starting. So I just remember on, on day one, and I think it was July of uh, 1978, I'm sitting here being trained by uh, one of the legal uh, attorneys that working in the PCT office. And all of a sudden he goes rushing out and he comes rushing back in and he says, well, we just got our first PCT filing. You know? <laughs> well, it was Caterpillar was the first uh, filer in the U.S. And then it took a long time for it to start building up because as you probably know, at the early stages of the PCT, there were a lot of issues that could trip up an applicant. And it wasn't until later, and we'll get to that later maybe, that the, the PCT was simplified and made more user-friendly so that applicants could file with confidence and then the growth rate uh, really accelerated. Mm. Even at the beginning of free was there the international stage uh, and then the national phase uh, after that at the 30, 31 month mark, or was it more streamlined process at the beginning? No, no, it was pretty much actually, it was less streamlined because it, in the early days, there was chapter one of the treaty, which dealt with filing of the application, providing the international search report, and then allowing to enter the national phase, I'll say 20 months, that's wobbled around a little bit. Then there was chapter two. So an applicant could then file a demand for chapter two and then they would get an international preliminary examination report and then they would get 10 more months to enter the national phase. And that worked pretty well, but uh, a lot of applicants said, let's simplify this a bit. Let's make sure that we have, everybody can get this 30 months. So when I talk about 30 months here, I'm talking about 30 months from filing of the first uh, national application or yeah, the first national or regional application. And that's how much time from that filing you have in order to enter the national or regional phase. I don't want to make this a primer on, on the PCT. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. This is a, a history lesson. I will ask your opinion on one topic that there was a bit of a debate that I was working in this area. So I always thought, certainly the Australian attitude when you're filing your PCT was that it's really important to get as clear an examination report at the PCT level so that you can then use that in the national countries. But my impression of the American approach was that you don't want to 
risk restricting the scope of your intervention at the international stage. And so don't worry about getting a clear report. What's your recommendation for how you should proceed? No, I think the most important thing is to have a clear report from the get-go. I mean, you're doing a service to the applicant. Actually, the opposite. You would be doing a disservice to the applicant if you didn't give him a very clear report because they're going to put out a lot of money. And if they don't know from the very get-go whether or not they have a high likelihood of receiving patent protection and they're wasting a lot of money in the PCT process. It's very cost effective if you're going to go ahead and get a patent, but if you're not going to get a patent and this happens over and over again, it's not as cost effective. I'm, I'm on the same page. I always say to people that uh, patents are either very expensive or very inexpensive. They're not expensive if your product is successful and you're getting a patent. They're very expensive if you're not. So you talked about as you got head of the PCT International Division at the USPTO, there were some challenges there. It was a very challenging position. What, what were some of the challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? Well, at the time the uh, the patent cooperation treaty came into effect, which was July 1st, 1978, the resources weren't given to the office in order to be able to adequately administer that. And so from the get-go, they had problems getting the work done, getting it done on time, getting it done properly. Back in the early days, there were a lot of pitfalls that applicants could stumble on before they could actually get their application correct and get it sent to WIPO in its capacity as the International Bureau. So this went on for a number of years. And, and indeed, one of the reasons myself and, and others got involved in the PCT was it got to the point where applicants were starting to lose their rights because things were not getting, the proper paperwork was not getting to the International Bureau of WIPO on time. So we worked diligently to move that along. And then the alternative was that WIPO, WIPO, was considering setting up an alternative receiving office in the United States. So applicants, instead of filing their applications with the USPTO, would file their applications with this alternate receiving office. And the people that ran the office at that time just didn't like that idea at all. So then finally, all the resources were put in in order to make the, the patent cooperation treaty work correctly in the office. And so after that, then things improved greatly. Sounds like a very challenging competitive situation. Uh, I guess everyone was about to lose their jobs if that uh, receiving office got approved. Yeah. And it was it was actually quite a big deal. That would be the subject matter of almost a different uh, discussion be <laughs> between you and I, and maybe not online. <laughs> we'll save that for a, a beer when you're visiting Australia in a few months' time. Now that we've covered, I'll say you've been advising the president at the White House. That sounds, uh, sounds impressive. And then, uh, but that wasn't good enough for you. You needed to go international uh, to the United uh, United Nations, sorry, in Geneva. You and your family moved over there and, and took over as director of PCT at uh, WIPO. Very impressive position. H how do you even get a job like that? Well, that's a good question. The person, well, first of all, uh, World Intellectual Property Organization is a specialized agency in the UN system and not actually part of the UN per se. So it follows the, the, the same budgeting and uh, employment and what have you, but they have their own separate governing bodies that govern how they do things. And there's even a special governing body just for the patent cooperation treaty, like there is for, you know, trademarks and industrial designs and what have you. So yeah, Okay, well, the the by far the biggest filer of PCT international applications was the United States. And so the person who is uh, the more obvious uh, choice would be a, a U.S. Uh, citizen, 
So at the very beginning, it was, it was an American. And then for an interim period, there was a French national. And then it came time for him to retire. So then they opened it up. And, uh, and I had the background because I had run the U.S. Receiving Office, International Searching Authority, International Preliminary Examining Authority, Designated Office, Elected Office. So I had all the background. So it was very easy, you know, once I applied for them to say, okay, Gary's uh, the qualified person. And so I was able to move over there and brought, you know, I think some some interesting aspects to uh, to WIPO. I'll be interested to, to hear about that. What, what did you bring? What springs to mind in your, you were there, was it seven years uh, leading that? Uh... Uh, it was actually, what, eight years, just, on, yeah, just, just under eight years. And um, so the U.S. government makes it easy for somebody to go to an international organization. So I... Uh, I was able to basically put my career on hold at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, go over to WIPO and spend eight years there. So they were looking for someone who could then help move the uh, the system forward, to help move it into, I won't say the 21st century because we weren't quite there <laughs> yet, but to, to, move it, to move it forward. And so they were looking for somebody that had my kind of background. I had support of the, the upper echelon of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So I was able to, you know, move in there and be effective from, from day one. So we brought, you know, with us when we went there, we brought some of the, the way of doing work is common in, in America. And, you know, just think about some of the challenges there. There's people from 50 different countries there. They have all different ways of doing business, working, interacting with bosses, interacting with their colleagues. Even there's some gender issues that had to be dealt with. So, you know, having an American there that, you know, had experience doing that type of thing, I think was very, very useful. So I was able to slot myself in there and able to do things, I think, effectively to help move the organization ahead. But it sounds like, a, I mean, I've, I've only visited the United Nations in both in Geneva and in uh, and in New York. And uh, it's fascinating having all those different cultures and people and languages uh, all around. A lot a lot of parts of America, they speak English. They don't speak any other languages. It's a bit of a, a culture shock to go to such a diverse place. Uh, how did you cope with all those languages and, and different cultures? Well, the WIPO works in, in two languages. Uh, it works in English and French, even though the, the Patent Cooperation Treaty works in very various other languages, and there's experts in all of those languages working for the PCT at WIPO. But it was English and French were the, the common languages. Um, I had English before I got there, and uh, through pain, <laughs> I, le I learned French uh, to, to some degree. You know, it, it became, uh, you know, basically a polyglot. So if you went out there, there were people that had expertise in the PCT and the different languages. And that was particularly important in the legal division there because they had to go out and they had to lecture to various offices and the inventor community all around the world. And so the, it's best if, if you're going to go to an Arab, Arabic speaking country that you do the, the training in Arabic. So we made sure that they could do that. Well, it sounds like a very interesting time. I've met a few times Jay Erstling. I can't remember, was he the, the guy after you or was he before you? He's a, another another American. Yeah, he's another American and he was after me. So okay. I, I stayed there for eight years and then Jay was kind of tag team. Jay came in and, uh, and took over. 
I think he was there seven or eight years. I don't know exactly how long he was there. Is it like a like a term, like a presidency, seven or eight years, and that's uh, you get voted out, or it's just as long as you uh, you you feel comfortable in the role? Yes, as long as you feel comfortable in the role, and and uh, and the powers that be feel comfortable with me being in the role. So <laughs> eight years was enough. I was basically on loan from the U.S. government. So the U.S. government has a a, a special uh, consideration. So the idea is that since you. U.S. Uh, nationals and uh, the government is spending a lot of money on various aspects in international offices that they should try to send people over, the best people, maybe we'll see if I was, best people over <laughs> to, to try to administer the these. And so it's up to eight years. So basically I could leave and I could come back to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, but I had to do it before the end of eight years or I lost my longevity and my retirement. Da, 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 da. So I was there about uh, seven years and 10 months. So then it was basically time to come back. And, and Jay Ursling was very much supported by the AIPLA, the American Intellectual Property Law Association. He came in and he followed me into the same role. I can't remember how I met him, but he was a very nice guy. And uh, at the time, I was just starting uh, Anovia. I'd put in a patent application in for uh, my invention, and it became listed as the one of the notable inventions, along with uh, the BlackBerry and Viagra. So in very good company there. But uh, I think as a segue, this was about when we met. I, I sort of looked up on the Rolodex, who used to be in charge of the PCT. Uh, here's a guy, Gary Smith, and I invited you to be on the, the board of Anovia, which you uh, kindly accepted and, uh, and were there for many years. I enjoyed the wisdom that you uh, shared along the way, but you're used to working in big organizations and uh, this is a, an involvement in a startup. I don't know. What was it like for you being involved uh, in an IP startup? Well, you know, as soon as I met you, you came, we were living in Alexandria, Virginia at that time, and you came down to visit uh, me and my wife was there too. And I just felt the energy that you had and I thought it was a great idea. So putting together that level of energy uh, to what became Inovia uh, was just, I thought I could help. You know, that was my, my criteria after I left the day-to-day -day is, uh, yeah, does it interest me and can I add value? And I saw what you guys were doing and I thought, yeah, my background, I think I can add value and I'm certainly interested in, in doing that. So I was very happy to help you guys in Inovia and you really carried that thing forward. Very impressive what you did from, you know, basically starting with nothing and then moving into such a, a worthwhile and sought after organization. I I've always appreciated your, your support and your help and uh, you've achieved so many things yourself and yet you remain so approachable uh, and humble. So uh, I appreciate those, uh, those kind words. Now uh, back to you. Uh, <laughs> now af after that, I saw that you, uh, you weren't done with your uh, international travel. We, we have a, a one of our directors here, Nigel Jennings, has traveled all around the world. He's an experienced patent attorney, but he's gone to the Amazon, Pakistan, even North Korea. Now you've gone and and decided, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna teach the Egyptian patent office how to do things. And I think maybe Turkey, maybe Colombia. Tell, tell me about those experiences. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, it was it opened up a whole new view. So what just as I was leaving the uh, WIPO, I was contacted to work with uh, what they called the Turkish Patent Institute at that time. And they were trying to change from basically just a registration 
evaluation type of office into an examining type of office. And then they wanted to use the PCT because PCT provides search and examination. So they wanted to use it both as for background and as a tool to teach people how to do that kind of training or that, that type of examining. And the people there were super qualified. They all had engineering or science degrees. Most of them had master degrees. So it was just a matter of, of training them on the processes, the patent processes and how they work. And they did particularly well. And after that, then I started working with the Egyptian patent office. I was in, at the Egyptian patent office 24 times and <laughs> they learned a lot from the PCT. They had their own processes and procedures, but the PCT procedures really helped them uh, hone their skills and all that. And what I'm particularly proud of those two offices, the, the Turkish uh, patent office and the, uh, and the Egyptian patent offices, they both became international searching and preliminary examining authorities. Why is that important? Because now nationals in Egypt can file patent applications in Arabic, PCT applications in Arabic and in Turkey, they can file in the Turkish language. And translations is, as you know, well know, is a very expensive aspect of uh, filing a patent application. So eventually, you know, because of the way the PCT works, uh, they have to translate into other languages, but at least to get their foot in the door, to get an international search, they can do all that in their native languages. Now with uh, working in Serbia, which was my next one, they needed to basically redo their whole process and procedures. And the office, I must say, was very, very open to making the changes that needed to be made. Uh, they invited, I worked with a team and the team was able to, we wrote some reports and they embraced the reports and they made changes and the working relationships were, were just wonderful. Then after that, I, I moved on to, to do some work in Peru and Colombia, again, trying to, uh, helping them use the PCT to improve the procedures they were using to examine patent applications. And then finally, the last three was uh, actually the, the, all the first, first uh, ones that I talked about were sponsored by U.S. government agencies. And the last one that I went to was actually uh, by the European Commission. So it went to, somebody has to do this, by the way, I had to go to Jamaica, <laughs> Trinidad and Tobago and Belize. And I worked with other <laughs> colleagues and we did training, ba again, based based on the PCT to help them uh, do the work that they needed to do. And so basically what the PCT is becoming is kind of the central focus. So there's some commonality among countries and examinations, which I think is really beneficial to applicants. Mm. So they're using you know, the, the technique, the rule book uh, of the PCT examination and applying it to their local examination uh, systems. Yes. Very much and so. that would work well for uh, for any local local applications that then want to go international afterwards. It's all in in the same same vein. Yeah, because the patent examiners in the office and understand the two. In a lot of the smaller offices, the patent examiners actually help applicants. You know, they don't help them with the invention, but they help them <laughs> with the the administrative side. So if they know that the applicant not only wants to file, let's say in Jamaica, Jamaica has just become a party of the PCT just recently. They wanted to file in Jamaica, but also had hopes of uh, filing a PCT to get patent protection in other countries. They know enough about the PCT to be able to be helpful. And I think that's super, super useful for applicants. Uh, certainly. And anyone who wants to go international has got to go via that route somehow. And having a helping hand from the patent offices is, is very valuable. 
valuable. And a helping from an OVIP. And- <laughs> <laughs> Keeping things a little bit uh, uh, cheaper along the way was was the goal of that company, uh, which which we did together, which was great. Now, that's that's some fascinating experiences you've had there. No doubt you've got uh, some friends in all of these uh, exotic places. So when you travel around the world, you, you, you're staying at uh, people's houses who you know? Is it-, it depends. You know, that's a cultural thing, you know? In some parts of the world, you're invited into people's homes and other parts of the world, not so much. So I, I've learned a lot about cultures and, uh, you know, how you meet people and what you can expect and all that. So, uh, yeah, whether I get invited to their home for to stay or get invited for dinner, you know, again, that, that's kind of a, a cultural thing. But I have friends. So, you know, when it's a birthday time of year on Facebook, I get them for, like, you know, around <laughs> the world. <laughs> all sorts of people in all sorts of languages. <laughs> so you've, you've worked in some very big organizations. You've uh, advised the president. It's been a United Nations organization over in uh, Geneva. Uh, and then you decided to uh, become an entrepreneur yourself back in 20, 2008, I think it was, you started the PCT Learning Center. And I, I, I don't know what it's like to work in a big organization. I know what it's like to, to do startups. I think they're completely different. How did you have that transition from big organization to something where it's just you and the keyboard? Well, you know, that's something... I, I, I tell people, I said, when I was at, at, at WIPO, I, the, I had a staff of 500 from 50 different countries. When I started, uh, along with my wife, the PCT Learning Center, I looked around the room <laughs> and it was <laughs> and the two was of it. us. <laughs> so yeah, so I had to learn a lot of skills that you know I used to ask other people to do, and uh, you know there was definitely a learning curve, but we worked with some very talented trainers. And that made a huge difference because the, the trainers that we use had a, a lot of respect in the patent community. And so when we would advertise, uh, we would headline that these people were the trainers. And uh, we got quite a few people, many big corporations, most of the big uh uh, patent law firms sent people regularly to our seminars. And it went on uh, very well uh, until in, at the end of 2019, we, we decided, well, we've been doing this about 11 years. So I think it's maybe time to back off. So uh, I called a, a friend and I said, you know, anybody might be interested in, in uh, taking over the PCT Learning Center? He said, yeah, me. So <laughs> it's, it's a guy named John White. So people listening to this podcast, may know John because he uh, is one of the two trainers that does most of the training along with Gene Quinn for the Practicing Law Institute does the PCT agency training. So my guess is that a lot of people that have become patent agents and attorneys in the U.S. have been trained by John. So John and his wife Tammy have taken over the company. All of our training was in-person training, but they took over just before COVID set in. So their, their original idea was that they wanted to move to making it online and automated, whatever. So they were going to do it gradually, but they decided that they couldn't do it gradually anymore. <laughs> so they jumped right in. So I helped do uh, uh, some of the training modules for them, but they've added more to it. So the PCT Learning Center also includes Madrid and The Hague. So they've got quite good people that, that are doing the work. So I'm very happy that the people that took over the company are people that really you know want to make it work. 
really want the, the PCT Learning Center to continue on and have the talent in the background to be able to make it happen. That's, that's important when you spend so much time. People talk about your business as your as your baby to uh, to have it adopted by some good people. That sounds yeah. uh, sounds great. And the timing was good. Uh, I mean, the the technology that's come along with Zoom and others in that time, and the acceptable nature of I know this kind of interaction. We don't have to. You're in San Diego. I'm in I'm in Sydney. Um, but uh, that's a lot more acceptable these days. Oh yeah. You know, had we continued with the company, I think we probably would have had to, you know, both uh, in person and uh, online, you know, type of training. Because, you know, in person, you know, if I go to, uh, you know, Houston, Texas, right, everybody's got to be in Houston, Texas, or they got to fly there. If we have a seminar in Houston, and people can also, you know, come in from other venues, then it's much easier. They don't have to pay the cost of transport and what have you. So yeah, so it's it's really the way to go. I'm very happy with what John and Tammy have done with the company. And just as a as a as a little plug, what does the PCT Learning Center do? What's the what? Where does it take you from? Where does it take you to? Is it a series of seminars? Is there a course you do? What's what's the whole gist? Well, they have a, for at least as far as the PCT, they have a series of modules that basically take you from the beginning. You know, what is the PCT? You know, what receiving office filing applications? You know, international search preliminary examination. You know, chapter two. You know, all this. They, they go through the the entire thing. I think there's 12 or 13 modules. And so this is just something that it's, it's uh, so they, they have different subscriptions. Person or, or a even a law firm or a corporation can get a uh, subscription service and then not only open to the PCT, but they're also open to Madrid and The Hague. So it's uh it's quite good. Um, I, in-person training is good because you have better interactions. But, you know, with Zoom, as you know, Justin, you can, you can ask questions and they have, they have these follow-ups uh, where they can, you know, you know, after the training's over, they'll say, okay, we're going to have a follow-up session in two weeks and what have you. And you can re recap and have the, have the questions. And even people in Australia can zoom in, right? They can zoom in. This is, this is, uh, been, uh, been, uh, very easy to do. I, I remember seeing some of the early seminars, uh, when you first started, was there, was a dark haired lady from the USPDO? Was it Carol, someone? Carol Bidwell. Yes. Carol Bidwell. She was a fantastic speaker and, uh, really, uh, maybe she was one of the people who was uh, the draw card for, uh, um, for, for some of the, the companies coming. She was a very senior person at the USPTA before she joined that uh, team, wasn't she? Wasn't she? Yeah, she was, she was in the, uh, the PCT area there and she was the head of the organization that did all the international outreach and training and all that type of thing. Yeah. She's super. We just had to say that Carol Bidwell was going to be there and we just said, <laughs> 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 there wasn't a question she couldn't answer. I mean, I I, well, I built my business around the PCT, so I knew a fair bit. But uh, she she was a uh, another world, and and I'm sure you're exactly the same. Is all that knowledge still there in your head? Uh, someone asking you a question these days, is it all uh, all still uh, rolling off the tip of your tongue? It's it's you know the, the basics are still there. You know the details. You know what what the fee structures are, and you know some of the you know as countries change their their laws and their procedures. You know I'm not keeping keeping up with that. But as far as the basics of the PCT is concerned, I'm still doing that. So I'm not doing, uh, I'm very selective about any work that I take on because I'm mostly retired at this time, but uh, that allows me to go to Australia and other 
fine places around the world. That uh, picture behind you of the uh, the ancient map is very appropriate for uh, you and your life, given where you've uh, been and, and worked. And uh, I think it's next month you're, you're coming to Australia for about two months. What, what are you planning on seeing uh, down under? Well, we've been, this will actually be my fourth trip there. So my first trip was uh, just to Sydney and Canberra. So I went to Discovery House and, and uh, did some work with the IP Australia. But then the last three trips have been with my wife. The first trip we did together, we went to Sydney and then went to Tassie, went to Tasmania <laughs> and rode our bikes from Hobart to Launceston. So, and you know, you have some hills down there in case you haven't visited. <laughs> and they probably didn't have electric bikes in those days, did they? They did not, but they did have a Cascade Brewery when we got to Launceston. So that... That was good. And then uh, <laughs> just a few years ago, we we started over in uh, in Perth, and then we came across to uh, the Tablelands and all that. We even had our 50th wedding anniversary in Uluru. So Goodness. probably one of the few that's done that from the U.S. And then this trip, we're going to we're gonna go to Cairns, and then we're going to go up through the Tablelands, and then we're going to go uh, just Sydney enough to pick up a car, snowy mountains in the blue blue mountains. Then we're going to head over to the coast, and we're going to go down the coast to Melbourne, spend a few weeks there, and then we're going to take the uh, the ocean highway over to Adelaide, spend some time there, and then fly over to New Zealand. So yeah, we're going to we're going to be there. The total trip's about two and a half months. Wow, so that sounds like a fantastic trip. When when you start stop innovating, which will probably be a few years and you can start doing those kind of things. So you probably won't do it in Australia. I'm I'm looking forward to it. We're we're dabbling a little bit uh last last holidays went to Perth for the first time and went up to there's a reef up there that's like the uh Great Barrier Reef called Ningaloo Reef. So we did did that, but uh the kids oh. are still at school and so I need to earn those private school fees for a few more years. <laughs> yet i know how that goes if you do end up spending more time in sydney come and have a beer with me but uh, i'm glad you'll be able to see david and it sounds like you're going to see a, a great part of the country you you will have done pretty much the whole you've, you've done everywhere now there's there's nowhere left for you, for you to do after this trip so you uh, you said you're uh, uh you're semi-retired so what, what are the next few years for you uh traveling to the traveling the world or a bit more pct lecturing or what's what are you looking forward to well more travel um so my wife and I have been to more than a hundred countries around the world. So we want there's still a few more we'd like to go to, and and ones we'd like to go back to, like Australia. So uh, yeah, we're going to do that as much as we can, and we're going to keep that up as much as we can. Um, just how many? You've probably been to quite a few countries too, Justin. So yeah. I have, but uh, I'm not going to challenge you to the geography section of Trivial, Trivial Pursuit, that's for sure. Well, if you can see this map behind, I don't know if the pins show up, but uh, I can that's see a little bit of the pins. This is where you've been. Yeah. Oh well, we'll have to we'll have to take a close up after the after the recording so we can see the the, the pathway. But uh, uh, it's been uh, been terrific chatting with you, Gary, and uh, really uh, uh, enjoyed catching up with you again. I wish you well with your travels to Australia and beyond, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully keep in touch. Okay, I hope so. It's been nice seeing and talking to you. Good luck with Bill Trader. You guys are on the right track. You have another winner there doing the things that people need done and doing it well. So terrific. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate the support. Well, that's it for our latest episode of Talking IP. And thanks to my guest, Gary Smith. Thank you for joining us. And please reach out to connect with me on LinkedIn, where we'll share updates on the release of each episode. Talking IP is brought to you by Bill Trader, the fintech solution that's purpose-built for IP firms. To learn more, visit BillTrader.com. In our next episode, I'll be joined by Tony Nim, 
a Swedish patent attorney and prolific IP entrepreneur who has some interesting stories about his journey so far.